Hello again, it's me, Phil Ryan, and as per normal, here we are with the Story Hive podcast, a selection of three stories from what we think is our amazing audio collection. They're short, they're brief, and we hope they really keep you entertained whenever you tune in to us. Now, we've said before that eventually we will run small adverts, but they won't be very annoying, but we need to keep them somewhere inside the podcast just so we can generate something to keep giving you this absolutely free, just like our home website. But let's get on with today's first story, and we think it's going to start you off with a bit of a shiver, and it's called The Memory of Shadows. Happy listening. The Memory of Shadows It started with a dream. It was the same every time. She was walking down the street. It was dark and the street turned a corner at its far end, and she could see a lamppost lit up brightly. Shadows cast along the fronts of darkened houses, eerie black iron railings, curtained windows. Silence. Just the sound of her own footsteps. And then the fear. She began to walk quicker, seeking the safety of the light on the corner. He appeared from a shadowy doorway. She was paralysed, with fear, his lower face half-obscured, his eyes cold, bright, then the knife in his hand, gleaming. Hello, my dear, he said, his voice triumphant. And then she woke up. It, it had been over a month now. She didn't tell anyone. She hated hearing other people's dreams. They were nonsensical. Her friends loved it, often shrieking at each other in the bar. And then I realised I had webbed feet, one would say. Madness, gibberish, silly. The result of chemicals and thoughts whirling in her brain. Meaningless. But this dream terrified her. Brought her wide awake, gasping. Wide-eyed, sweat-covered. It was in that second week she realised she knew the street from the dream. She walked down it most days, only now it was very cleaned up. The houses all painted in bright, multicoloured hues, white blinds, fancy front doors and little bushes in pots. It was just around the corner. She lived in East London, a smart new block, Everglade, the surrounding smaller original streets all close by, Victorian, classic terraces. All in all, a very upmarket area now, but it hadn't always been the case. She knew the area had once been a poor place, the warehouses, industrial buildings, all shining new loft apartments and cafes now. The small street was on her way back from the station, and it was the quickest route by far. Going the other way meant an extra ten minutes up along and around on the noisier, busy main road. And it wasn't worth the walk. Then, that terrible moment of realisation came when she saw him in the day. The man from the dream. By saw him, she really only half saw him. She was on her phone, checking a delivery arrival, striding back home on that Saturday, returning from the fruit market. And she'd almost bumped into him, and she looked up. It was him, the, the man in, in black, his face half obscured by a scarf, and he'd said, Hello, my dear. Same voice, his eyes hard, cold. The knife. She dropped her bag. But when she turned, there was no one there. Just her and two women strolling with pushchairs. And they kindly helped to gather up her fallen fruit. 
She was sweating when she got home, the shower cleaning her, but she still felt cold. It was just a coincidence, just a, just a silly thing. But that night, the dream, again, that voice, those eyes, and she tossed and tumbled for the rest of the night. The next morning, the woman from 22 had stopped her and told her to watch her bag. Apparently, some mugger had been assaulting women in the area, the local paper headline even mentioning it the next day. And she mentally noted what the woman had said. It was a good area, just a few dodgy parts left, typical of how regeneration actually worked. Some people still left as the money swept through. Work was frantic. It pushed everything from her mind now. The new client website launched just four short weeks away. Her team were on the case. They needed her strong direction, clear-headed thinking, and she knew that. She worked from home half the week, and she preferred it that way. Plus, it worked really well. And somehow, even though sleep-deprived, she surged on, her instructions clear. Her strategy was focused and easy to follow for the team, her years in the trade really showing. The CEO himself had even called to congratulate her, hinting at promotion. Her boss, the design head, was thinking of retiring. Everyone knew that. She was his natural successor. Way better than him, her friends had said, and she laughed. She was patient. Ten years she'd been there, rising higher year on year. And her natural leadership impressed everyone. She was just likeable, fair, kind even. Everyone said so. Plus, in truth, she was brilliant. Everyone knew this. A great eye, her junior designed and said. Fantastic look and design feel. And the parent company, amazingly, was doing so well. Share prices holding rock steady. Her options growing very nicely. And, best of all, the new job came with a hefty wedge of shares. She had this. She knew she did. She just had to stay focused. Then it happened again. She'd been walking home from the gym, mid-morning, bright sunshine. Then, as if a switch had been flipped, it was night, like in the dream. She was in the middle of the street. She could see the lit street lamp. It was gas, black iron, wide clear glass, old-fashioned, and she'd looked down, and she saw she was wearing a long dress, lacy, grubby, torn at the bottom. Suddenly, a horse and carriage swept past her, the horses breathing loud, and she saw a large post on the far wall, a theatrical performance tonight, July 23rd. A steam train had whistled loudly from under the bridge around the corner, and she'd almost fallen back. What, what, was, what was happening? And then she was back in the street. Two builders swigging cokes, looking at her curiously. You are right, love? One said, his face concerned. And she said she was and broke into a half run, now keen to get home. What the? What the hell? She thought about it for days, the dream thankfully not returning. The launch was now just two weeks away. The day a stream of communication. Her layouts in place, sub-editors doing a great job on all the content and everything was right on track, and then the dream happened again that night. The horse, the carriage, the poster, the eyes, the voice. 
the knife. And she lay there, her chest heaving. This was crazy. It was just a dream. It was just a stupid dream. But, but that daytime thing, seeing him there. Overwork. Overwork, she thought. Yeah, just that. She'd be putting on crazy hours recently. And the clients were very satisfied with the team's progress. Great reports reaching her desk. And that was what mattered. But this thing, this silly dream. And closing her eyes, she half drifted off until her phone alarm pinged noisily a few short hours later. She really enjoyed her work. She liked planning. Her no-nonsense, sharp and focused approach saved hours of everyone's time because she had a clear vision and she knew the brief. Stick to the plan, she told the team, and they had, raising their game, she felt. The client was a massive international shipping company and they had a massive budget to match. She knew how important this commission was not only to the company, but to her. She wasn't going to drop the ball, dream or no dream. She would just push through. And thankfully, the next week passed without any incident. The night went smoothly. Meetings in the day came and went. The new footage from the multi-platform website arrived. It looked amazing. Her final graphics had been inserted and the landing pages all screamed brilliance. It was coming together exactly as she planned, her methodical way of working completely paying off. And she sat back in her chair and sipped her coffee. Yeah, good. A few hours in the gym. That would loosen all the kinks, she felt. The training plan, absolutely on schedule. It was the following Thursday morning. She'd gone in later, and annoyingly she left her phone on the kitchen counter in a hurry to leave. And as she turned around, Halfway up the street to go back, it happened again. The darkness, the horse, the carriage, the huge poster, the steam train whistling from under the bridge, and this time a man walking a dog brushed past her, disappearing around the corner, his brown bowler hat clear in the lamplight, his old-fashioned suit, the smell in the air, coal fires, horse dung, heavy, cloying. She'd frozen. Oh, God. Oh, God, not again. She could see the doorway. Up ahead, on her left. Deeper, set back, dark. She knew what waited there. Her heart now, pounding, furiously. And a car horn made her jump, and she was back. Back again. Right then, in the street. A young girl now waving after a car, her hand upraised. Her mind whirled. This was getting annoying. Oh, God. Maybe she'd see a doctor or get some tablets or something. She knew all about burnout. She'd seen it in two colleagues, that guy from finance last year. They'd found him crying in the car park in a ball on the floor by a skip. He'd never come back. But the launch, it was set for next week. She she didn't have time for this. She, she just didn't, she thought. And the dream came again that night and for the next three it, it, it didn't make sense it it wasn't related to anything it just came and went and she was grateful for the nights it didn't come it was just a drag somehow she had to stick to her plan it was on a huge board in the main conference room her meticulous instructions each with a ticked box by them indicating a task completed 
see the task, plan the action, complete the action. One of the girls had actually made it into a poster in a frame for her. It was on the living room wall. She liked sayings, old ones, her favourite, to kill two birds with one stone. That was her, perfectly summed up, multitasking and highly capable. She liked that about herself. But this stuff with the dream, this was just getting crazy. There were four days until the launch, and the office was calm. It was her way. Everyone just got on with their jobs. Her assistant Zoe efficiently reporting back to her, always so helpful. The beta testing had been completed. Everything worked perfectly. Not one broken link. Everything smooth. And she thought about young Prakash, her chief coder. Their kid was a genius. Funny too. Cute in his own way. But she pushed that thought from her head. The party, the launch, was set for Saturday night. Very up marketplace in the city. Everyone who was anyone was going to be there. However, now one annoying new thought had worked its way into her mind. The dream. The huge poster. A theatrical performance tonight, July the 23rd. That was weird. That was the launch date night. Just had to be a coincidence. The dream, that mix of chemicals and memories and stress and all that stuff she'd read about. Mixing random thoughts together, projecting fears. Yes, that was it. Fear. Perhaps she was worried. Perhaps that was the basis of it all. Somehow mixing the present with the past and taking the now and placing it in the then. It's an interesting concept in a way. The now and placing it in the then, like everything. But it just needed a plan, she felt. A way of dealing with it. She went online. That was her way. And that night before bed, she read about different phenomena. The dream. Nothing like hers was anywhere. Things were similar, dark and frightening. But her planner's brain was now in overdrive. Let's find a solution. It was, it was worth a try. She sat on her computer. She watched some videos. She ordered a few things. Messaged a few people. An old college friend. He'd once had a massive crush on her. She added some pictures to her LinkedIn page. Wrote a post. And then it was time to sleep. The dream came back. She almost felt it would. Exactly the same. That final moment, the eyes, the voice, the knife. She lay awake in the darkness, her breath short and gasping. <sighs> this was just getting impossible. Look, she, she, couldn't, she couldn't put it off. She'd just have to see a doctor. They, they, but what was the point? They'd just give her sleeping pills. She'd tried those before. They never worked. Plus, they left her muzzy-headed in the morning. But right now she knew she needed all her wits about her. Every single one of them. God, she did not need this now. There was just a few days to the launch. The next day passed uneventfully. Busy, but no more sightings. But then it happened again. On the way home, around five o'clock. The day still bright. She hadn't really seen him, but she'd been aware of him. And he'd brushed past her, two giggling office girls on his arms, and he'd half turned, that face half obscured. Hello, my dear, that voice. And she just looked away, put her head down and kept walking, her heart pounding. This was, this was crazy. Of course she hadn't looked back. She just went home and poured a very large glass of wine, her hand still trembling. 
And the second time, it came again, just a day later, lunchtime. By now she could almost feel it coming, his presence. She tried to push it away. One minute sunlight, some school kids, a traffic warden. The next, the darkness, the train, the dog walker, the horse and carriage. And him, and that voice. It just stayed with her now, fragments of it. The poster with tomorrow's date, her grabby dress, his voice, that triumphant tone, the knife. She didn't know what to do. She tried pushing it from her thoughts, but it kept coming back. And she went into the office, glad of the distraction. The team, all busy with final preparations, and the senior managers, like her, all gathered now, every tick on the conference room screen in green. The site was complete, perfect, breathtaking, some had said, all working, fully functioning, and the big switch on was tomorrow. And everyone was going to be there, the clients, the CEO, the press, the company organising the launch, leaders in their field, they always used them. It was going to be amazing, she knew that. But still, the dream... The office had been almost eerily calm. She hadn't had the dream that night. She was relieved and she'd gone in for the final briefing. Mainly PR stuff, it seemed. A short talk by Stephanie about client interaction on the following night. But everything was done. In place. The fix-it people were standing by just as backup. And she'd left nothing to chance. She never did. The plan was set. Flexible, but set. Her main team now stood down. There was nothing left to do. And the day passed very slowly. It was always the same, she thought, before a big client launch. Like the start of the school holidays when she'd been a child. A sense of something unknowable. But something about to begin. The wonder and the terror of it all. A bit like the night. A bit like the dream. The day was long. And when she arrived home, she went to bed early. She'd been too excited to sit and watch the television. And the day had been exhausting, frankly. It was the tension, the anticipation. Everyone had felt it. She phoned her mother. She sent a few emails. It was her sister's birthday in the next fortnight. And gift boxes and packages were scattered around her bed. Her thoughts firmly on the launch. The dream slightly at the back of her mind now. But it was all set. It was out of her hands. Best of all, the CEO had signed everything off and it was on him, she felt. But she recalled that smile he'd given her when he told her he couldn't believe how brilliant a job she'd done and he'd winked and laughed and then he'd corrected himself, saying of course he knew she was a genius and that's why the promotion was going to happen. Her heart had nearly burst out her chest. Yeah, the promotion, 75 grand, full health, director privileges, share options, a, a new car. She lay back, her heart pounding. She'd done it. She'd done it. She was so excited. Then Dad came on the phone, telling her how proud he was, how he'd always been proud of her, and he knew she could do anything she set her mind to. She'd been like it as a little girl, he'd said. And then he said how much he'd loved her, his voice trembling with emotion. What a day. What a day, she thought. And she closed her eyes. She was there, the street, 
the darkness, the faraway street lamp, the gaslight flickering, a pool of distant light. Oh, God. And she held her breath, the chimney smoke now acrid in her nostrils. The horse and carriage swept past. The man with the dog. The steam tray whistled under the bridge. But this time, she didn't move. Not this time. Instead, she breathed out, very slowly. Her feet now carrying her forward, carefully, step by step. And she took her time, listening as a swish of a grubby torn dress dragged along the pavement echoing her footsteps. And still she moved, not rushing, the dark recessed doorway coming closer. And the shadow changed, as she knew it would, slowly, seeming to almost detach itself from the blackness. It was him. He seemed to almost slide in front of her, his eyes cold, the scarf obscuring his features. He began to say, when she jammed the large taser right between his eyes, its bright blue discharge briefly lighting the windows beside her. He dropped, like a stone, falling heavily at her feet, her now mentally thanking her old flame, the personal protection officer, for getting it for her. And on the floor the prone figure twitched and jerked, incapacitated, and completely stunned. <sighs> she was breathing heavily now, and she hitched up her grubby lace skirt, and dragging the limp form behind her, she headed towards a pool of light, the gas lamp still flickering. He wasn't too heavy, she felt, the workout in the gym, a great idea. And now, swiftly lifting and dragging the man's still twitching body, she slid him over, the grimy, soot-stained railway bridge, sending him crashing noisily down 50 feet onto the goods train truck below as a steam train completely obscured. Taking the now and placing it in the then. That's what one lady on the website had said, dealing with the dreams or whatever they were. Time slips, one site had said. The overlapping somehow of modern times with the past. Lots of weird examples listed. Some people's stories were quite compelling. None of them making this sort of stuff up. But maybe that's what that was, she thought. The dream. The dream. But she didn't care. Like always, she'd made her plan. She liked planning. And she never saw or thought of him again. And her favourite part, the local mugger, he never appeared again either. Two birds with one stone, she thought. Two birds, one stone. Well, we hope that one grabbed your attention. So, fast and furious, here comes our second story. And this one's called The Inquiry. And, as per normal, our quick spoiler, you never know quite who's out there amongst us. We think this one also might make you go, ooh. Dear Sir, thank you for your inquiry regarding the P67Q permit. I've attached a link below. Your sincerely, Alan Briggs, Permit Department. Dear Mr Briggs, thanks for the link. I've now printed out the forms. However, I need to ask, does the P67Q permit work in conjunction with the D140T? 
Best regards, Jim Davis. Dear Sir, that's a very good question. No one's ever asked me that, but I can see it's not covered on our website. The answer is actually yes, but only if accompanied by an online G568 sheet. I'm sorry it wasn't made clearer. Your sincerely, Alan Briggs, Permit Department. Dear Alan, thanks for clearing that up. Of course it's not your fault. I'm guessing someone else in the purchasing section created that issue. To be honest, I need an extra coffee this morning to try and figure it out. Once again, thanks for being so efficient. It's really appreciated. Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, that's very kind of you to say. Our department does try its best, and I'm like you. <laughs> Without my morning coffee, I can't do anything. Yours sincerely, Alan. Dear Alan, I've submitted the PH67Q and the 0140T, but the third section on, on, on the online is a little vague. Should it be single or double, considering the P67Q? Oh, if you like coffee, by the way, there's a great place not far from your office, I noted. It's called Carlo's Coffee Bar. Fantastic, authentic Italian coffee. Perhaps you've heard of it. Best regards, Jim. Hi, Jim. Uh, yeah, you need to put double in box 14. Actually, I've seen Carlo's now you mention it, but I prefer an amazing coffee truck called Colombian Real that's to be found near the office in the precinct. It only arrived last week, but their prices are half the others and their coffee's amazing. Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, great stuff. I've now put double, but it's still asking for a code and I can't proceed without it. Any ideas? To be honest, it's been 20 minutes. It's getting to be like a pub quiz. Thanks for your help in the advance. Oh, and thanks for the coffee tip. Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, I'm really sorry about that, mate. Yeah, it's a strange fault, but I'm assured it's being fixed. Just put four zeros and you should be able to proceed. And I can see your point. Yeah, it's really a bit like a pub quiz trying to guess. Ha! <laughs> Well, more coffee, I think. Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, I'm really worrying I'm beginning to be a pain, but the four or zeros work, but it needs a 50H confirmation. Oh, by the way, funnily enough, I'm in a pub quiz team. So you think I could work all this out? <laughs> Extra coffee needed, I reckon. Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, not at all. You're not bothering me. It's my job, Jim. I'm really sorry the system is a bit complex. It's not you. Type 50H clear, then five zeros. That that should do it. This might surprise you, mate, but I'm in a pub quiz team too. The Green Dragon by Pemberley. You know, drinking my Colombian Real now just to get me through the morning. <laughs> Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, brilliant. It's all worked. I'm assuming I just need that F40 edition that you got. But talk about coincidences a minute. We played the Green Dragon team last month. You beat us with that brilliant guy and all that stuff about chemicals. I play for the Red Lion in Barton Fields. <laughs> Looking at the clock now, mate, my coffee cup is calling. <laughs> Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, yeah, glad it's nearly sorted. The F40 thing, yeah, it should complete the phase. Now, this is going to shock you, but I'm the guy that beat your guy. Colin, wasn't it? He was brilliant, though. What he didn't know about fish, you could write at the back of a stamp. I think he said out in an aquarium shop. Really close, though, wasn't it? I don't like to brag, but I'm pretty good at chemistry. You know, I studied for it at uni before I came here. I love these random coincidences, don't you? Time for coffee, mate. Yours, Alan. Dear Jim, sorry again for the lateness of my last reply, but I've been off these past days with a bit of a dicky tummy. Too much coffee, probably. Happily, I'm fine now. Oh, I hope the F430 edition worked out. Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, you're a complete star. Yeah, it all whizzed through. I just need the purchase people to, you know, obey that last section and then I'm done. I'm sorry to hear you've been unwell, mate. You better take it easy. Maybe dial back on the coffee, yeah? <laughs> Best regards, Jim.
dear Jim, that's very kind. I feel much better as it goes. And to be honest, yeah, purchasing, they'll need to do any ID stuff, but you knew that. Now, I'm not sure I could live without my coffee. And I remembered that winning answer. Remember on the pub quiz, it was Barium, which to be honest, was a complete guess. Good night though, wasn't it? Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, I think you're being a bit modest, mate. You really know your stuff. Yeah, that was a good quiz, wasn't it? Your team are great. Sadly, I just had to leave early as I had a work call. I hope you're perking up a bit. <laughs> perking up, bit of a coffee joke there. Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, again, very sorry for the lateness of my reply, but I've been off again these past days with this dicky tummy. What a drag. Just remember, your team's very good. Don't forget that. And don't forget your mate Colin is a blooming genius. I wish he was on our team. God, blast this stomach. Too much coffee. Probably stick to the water, eh? <laughs> Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, sorry about your tummy issues. I wish you were on our team, mate. Talking to Colin, did you meet his sister Jennifer? Tall girl, light brown hair. Rather drunk, I understand. Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, <laughs> that's pretty kind of you to say. I'd love to be on your team, but no, I don't remember Jennifer. Why do you ask? Yours, Alan. Dear Alan. Oh, oh dear. Your memory must be playing tricks, mate. Jennifer was the rather drunken girl you found outside the car park, Alan. Don't you remember? She remembers you. She pointed you out to me. Come on, Alan, think again. Jennifer, the girl you raped in the garden area. Suddenly the CCTV wasn't working. The police said she was so drunk she was probably complicit. What a lovely phrase, eh? Complicit. Like a pub quiz answer. Just because she's had too many, it was somehow her fault she got raped. So not pursuing the case. Perhaps you need another coffee to jog your memory? Or maybe not. As the ones you've been getting from Colombian Real, which is, by the way, my coffee truck, we've been lacing it with a poison from the Japanese puffer fish. Remember our Colin? He knows a lot about fish, like you said. He's my brother. Jennifer's my sister, by the way. And she's a computer whiz. So this entire email thread will blank itself three minutes after you open this one. I just sold you your last coffee and I watched you drink some before you went in the building. And if Colin's right, by the time you've read this today, you'll be dead in the next four minutes. And as I understand, it's really painful. Yeah, painful, right? Like knives twisting around in you. And the poison's utterly untraceable. <laughs> Clever, eh? Thanks for the help with the permits, by the way. Best regards, Jim. Dear Mr Davis, in answer to your very kind and thoughtful inquiry about my colleague Alan Briggs, I'm very sorry to tell you he unexpectedly passed away and I'll be handling all the permit inquiries from now. So, how can I be of assistance? Yours faithfully, Stephen Henderson, Permits Department. A bit strange, I know, but, well, that's the way we kind of roll around here. Anyway, I've said it before, but writing is actually very good for you. I know that sounds a strange thing, because you get to express yourself and you practice a skill. So in today's little tip, I just want you to choose a famous person that you admire, run a quick Google research thing, and now write just one incredible fact you can find that sums them up. Just use, I don't know, 400 words maximum. Keep it lean and tight in descriptive terms if you can. Always remember, good, good research is what gives non-fiction stories, I think, their credibility. Because you know it's factual, it's well observed, and of course it's short and sweet and gets to the point. And that research means you can find just that one point I was talking about. Anyway, here's the final story today, and this one's called The Ten Dragons. And we think it's a bit of a clever one.
My name is Jeremy Wilson. In truth, it isn't, but it will suit for now. I'm a retired Chief Inspector of Police, Interpol, the Metropolitan Police Force, Special Investigation Division. Now, where I was based doesn't matter. But what does matter is the record books I kept and the stories I gathered and the information I received. Now, the stories I was told, I could never tell. The stories I signed an official document not to write about ever. Until now. And the reason, well, that will become obvious later. But anyway, let's just start the ball rolling. Now, I like to categorise things. So here we're going to begin with the burglar. But before we really start, Phil says I have to give each story a name. <sighs> so after some discussion, I've reluctantly agreed with him. And so this first one's called The Ten Dragons. Now, there are many different kinds of burglars. Opportunists who see an open window. In they go, grab and run. Small timers, junkies, the very desperate, male and female. And then there's the planners. Bit up the evolutionary scale, these ones. Male and female again. Pick a target, case a place, study it, do a bit of research, choose the right moment and in they go. Take things they've targeted. Now, the second group, they're a bit more complicated. See, they have levels, you see, small time, big time. And then there's the third type, the one big score, and it's the last time. Now, that was Frank Delaney. Never been caught. Utterly professional, very sharp, generally big time. Good hits, large paydays, a good researcher, a meticulous planner. No detail left out. Good recruiter as well. Only the best for our Frank. A real international guy. Europe mainly, UK occasionally. And unusually, he favoured stealing from criminals. <laughs> Not for any altruistic reasons, trust me. Simply because who are they going to report it to? Us? The police? Nope. They wouldn't do that. They couldn't do that. So our Frank had carved out a bit of a niche. He wasn't popular. He was hunted, in fact. And in truth, he wasn't even Frank Delaney. That was a name he'd stolen from a graveyard in Cornwall, some bookkeeper from Truro, long dead but miraculously alive again, complete with all the necessary papers. All legit too, not a single forgery. He'd bought the lot. Dodgy group of employees in various official organisations, he targeted, blackmailed them, frightened the shit out of them. And now he had a full set of everything. National insurance number, passports, well, three of them, Bank accounts, building society accounts, he had 20 of those. Driver's licences, pilot's licences. He was even a qualified doctor, according to his certificates. You name it, our Frank had it. Now Frank had finally decided to retire. He'd done well, he'd washed all his dirty money. He was actually sitting pretty much pretty. But you see, greed, it's a terrible thing. No, it wasn't enough for Frank. He liked nice things, hence the final job. It was the safety deposit company of, well I, well, I won't tell you where. It was a hallowed institution, apparently, well under the radar, you know, discreet place, no questions asked. If you paid the fees, anyone could avail themselves of their services, and I mean anyone. To be honest, 
If blood could stick to murderous shoes, then the old fancy marble floors of that place would have run red with shoe prints, wet with death. Mafia, dictators, drug cartels, oligarchs, politicians. This was their place, their hiding place for their stash. Forget the wood panelling, the plush carpets, the old masters on the office walls of the chairman. This place was a repository for the profits and proceeds of death. Now, how Frank had got wind of it, I've no idea, but get wind of it he did. And he'd sat on the information for years, apparently. Fifteen, some said. But he was watching the place, checking it out. He regularly visited the city. He had a small office there as well. Mr Frank Delaney, part of a known company, completely legit. Now, whoever he was, he had patience and nerves of steel, balls too. Because if half of these people got hold of him, they would slowly feed him through a wood chipper in front of his wife and kids, if he had any, which I doubt somehow. If I'm honest, he seemed a lone wolf, covering his tracks, leaving no trace, until that last job the biggest of his career. Money is a powerful aphrodisiac. It turns people's heads, sensible people's heads. Enough of it will convince some people to do anything. And I mean anything. So Frank assembled his team. Now this was the most dangerous part. Forget all that bullshit about there being honour amongst thieves. There really isn't any. It was a difficult and highly dangerous complex job. And Frank knew if any of his charming confederates got a bit windy, they could just call up the place and demand a reward and grab him. This is and was a dog-eat-dog world. Most of them would sell out their granny first chance they got. But they take risks too, if the money was right. And Frank was offering big money. Really big money. I mean, after all, this place was like Fort Knox, full of loot, a building locked together tighter than a drum, and potentially a drum that would happily kill you. State-of-the-art stuff, every bit of security kit you could imagine. After all, it was Gardner King's ransom. Now the building housed rooms, not boxes, no. These people had serious amounts of stuff. They needed more than a little box in a wall, and Frank well, he thought it through and he had a plan. Clever, really. Now, he chose for his confederates, and we'll call some more older gentlemen and ladies, ones looking to hang up their old criminal ways, wanting to finally just sit and relax on a beach somewhere. Ones sick of looking over their shoulder for that knock on the door or the sound of approaching sirens. There were others in his team, and they were way more surprising, but I'll tell you about them later. Now, the details are sketchy. But I think there were 20 in total. Not an unusual number for a job this big. However, some of them will really shock you. Or maybe they won't. Frank's first problem was not how to get in. No, that's not how smart criminals operate. They're more concerned with how to get out. You see, modern security systems are tricky. They have backups, fail-safe, hidden things that lock doors and exit. In effect, like a Venus flytrap. The insects climb inside in search of glorious honey-looking nectar and then BAM! The teeth of death close around you. Now I have to point out at this juncture that please don't confuse my descriptions with me being impressed with these people. I'm not. They're criminals, nasty bastards generally, 
the type that's still from your family. They don't care. You're merely collateral damage to them. So I just wanted to get that on record. Anyway, our Frank, he studied and studied and he was very careful. He knew he couldn't give anyone in that company any idea he was casing the joint. You see, he was in effect a little fly trying to tightrope walk his way across a spider's web and one false step and he was lunch. Finally, he came up with his plan. He'd open an account in the place. Yeah, an old trick, but the next part was much cleverer. You see, like many smart criminals, Frank had set up some real-world businesses years back to wash his dirty money through. Now, the way company law works, say in the UK, means you can set up offshore accounts, a literal maze of one company owning another, and Bob's your uncle, you don't pay any tax, and you feed your stolen money in one end, fund a company in the UK, and bingo, clean money comes out the other end. The outcome being, you're pretty much untraceable. And Frank had done this for years. His cleverest trick was he bought three recruitment agencies. And year on year, he built up his stake. Remember, he had the money. Until he was effectively the managing director. Now, of course, he'd hired other people to actually do the job. Good people, straight, hard-working people, no criminal record, all decent folk. And of course, he paid them all well. But Frank actually was, in fact, the boss, the guy that pulled the strings. Now, more of that later. Because now, Frank had to set up the much harder part. How to get rid of what you stole. You see, if you take London, for example, you'll find the property market is awash with dirty money. You might not know this, but more than three quarters of the fancy new apartment blocks are built with Russian mafia money, Mexican and Colombian drug cartel assets, and they wash it all clean, wiping off the blood of ordinary people, so to speak. Now, the list of scumbags doing this is very long, and the Met Police know all about it, but they're powerless to act, mainly because your senior UK politicians are all corrupt and in the power of the criminals. London is actually now recognised as the criminal money laundering capital of the world. <laughs> Rule Britannia, eh? Anyway, back to Frank. Now, Frank knew stealing the stuff was difficult, but the tricky part, converting it into real clean money, was even harder. Think about it. Where'd you say sell a stolen Monet painting or diamonds or gold bars? eBay's out. Facebook marketplace is rules, so that leaves the other criminals really, yeah? But seriously though, who buys dodgy stuff? Now remember I did say, there's no honour amongst thieves, it's true. But say if you rock up at your criminal mate's place in the south of France and there's the money you nicked and then stashed in your safety deposit vault hanging in his toilet, you're probably going to want to ask him where it came from, right? You see, it's a limited marketplace. So our Frank came up with another plan. Now it was a real masterstroke. You see, our Frank scoured the universities of the world for a young jewellery designer. And he found Sophie Chung in Singapore. Again, not a real name or location. But she was an absolute master of her art. So he set her up in her own place. And then he bought and bribed magazine editors, reviewers, radio people, internet people, influencers, 
until she was the name on everyone's lips. She was the top jeweller. Famous people, actors, sports people, politicians, industrialists, oligarchs and criminals, naturally too, all flocking to her showroom. High-end prices, very high-end prices. Amazing stuff as well, stunning, all by private invitation only. There's nothing so vulgar as an actual shop. Now, Frank's plan was just to steal a shed load of precious metals, diamonds and stones. Nothing else, just that. And he'd feed them to little Sophie. She'd knock up some fabulous creation, charge some stupidly high price. Frank would take his cut and she would never know the source material for all the pieces was actually completely free because he'd nicked them in the first place. Very high profit margin as a result, courtesy of our Frank. Clever, eh? Yeah. However, he first had to get the stuff out of the safety deposit place, a place he'd heard could kill whoever entered and indeed whoever left or tried to leave. Now that is where the recruitment agency came in. You see, Frank had created, amazingly, a 10-year plan. Ambitious, meticulous, outrageous in a way. I sort of come close to admiring him, but like I said, nah, not really. He was a crook, pure and simple. Remember, I'm a thief taker. Now Frank's planning and timing was absolutely meticulous, plus his knowledge of human psychology, second to none. What he'd done, he'd organised a private exhibition of Sophie's new collection, invitation only of course, in this city, I'm not going to tell you where, and he'd invited a very select list of attendees, half of them being some of the nastiest bits of work on the planet, coincidentally all of them having rooms in the safety deposit company. Now Frank had had that place observed for over a year and he'd set the whole thing up very carefully. It was going to be a late evening event, exclusive, upmarket location, very discreet. But his masterstroke was knowing about dragons. Now by dragons, I mean generally nasty, evil people who build up treasure. In other words, criminals, millionaires, billionaires, I don't differentiate between any of them. They've all got terrible methods to acquire their wealth. Most of them exploiting and hurting people, in my opinion. But all of his people on this list were serious dragons, hoarding their treasure. Never even seeing it most of the time, but just knowing they had it, locked away, safe from prying eyes. But you see, Frank knew that dragons liked to see their treasure, you know, from time to time, to touch it, to revel in it. See, Frank really knew his dragons. Now, remember I said Frank was a doctor? Well, it turns out he actually had studied medicine, specifically in his case, one particular subject, toxicology. He was an expert in all things deadly to the human operating system. Anyway, more about that later. You see, the plan had started and everything was falling into place. One afternoon was all it took. Remember, it was all about Frank and his friends getting out, not in. So starting around 11 o'clock, 10 of Frank's crew arrived, five women and five men. Now they entered Frank's two safety deposit rooms he'd paid for, both next door to each other, 
and they simply waited, assembling what they needed, the things that Frank, over the years, had already put into place. You need to know the rooms were arranged along a sort of giant crossway design corridor, 40 in each wing, so to speak, all covered by cameras, alarms, laser beams, everything in plain sight. You name it, they had it. An alarm would go off at the slightest provocation and just lock the place down together tighter than a steel drum. Plus, and get this, they'd even pump a highly deadly gas if the security operator so desired into each and every room. Remember, this place was a trap. Now, the protocol to get in was very simple. A client would arrive, one of our high rollers, he'd show their ID and then give their private code number to the manager. Once he got that, a team member would escort them down in the lift, all on cameras and sensors, and then the client would be taken to the door of their private room and the assistant would walk away for the 20 paces and turn and face the wall. That way he couldn't see what they were up to. Now, the client would then tap their special key code in. Plus, and this is the really clever bit, a retinal scan. See, forget the movies. You can't beat it. It's impossible because every eye is completely like your fingerprint. It's absolutely unique. But as soon as the client did that, pow, the door would open. The client would enter their room and once inside, each of these rooms had a similar layout. Very luxurious, you know, like a high-end hotel or something. It had a table, chairs, sofa, secure computer connection and laptop, and general racking, this is how big the room was, to hold the goods. Some temperature-controlled units, and others just sort of shelving. Now, the assistant would now leave the corridor. He'd return back upstairs. He could be summoned, though, by the client on an internal phone system for assistance. And there was a trolley to move larger objects or even drink orders or simply just to leave. But he had to call the assistant. Now, one important last point about dragons. Frank had found, by studying it, they always wanted to see their stuff alone, in secret. So they only ever came alone. Well, to keep their secrets. Well, secret. Now remember... As I said, our Frank was a master of understanding human nature. He kept one step ahead of us his entire life, so it's fair to say he had us figured out too. The way we behaved, reacted, our procedures. I hate to admit it, but he was very good at his job, and that was a thief. Now, the key he felt to his plan was the place should run like normal. Nothing out of the ordinary, just clients coming and going, following the procedure. Now, over the years, he'd managed to place three people on the inside through his recruitment agency. Sleepers, they called them, like spy agencies. You know, people who get put into countries for years doing nothing until one day they get activated, so to speak. They then did whatever they had to do and then vanished. And Frank's second key to his plan was to find, and you're going to love this bit, bitter people, all older, all slightly desperate, not criminal, not really, just merely folks that felt hard done by, that felt life had treated them unfairly. You see, they would go along with their part, and in a way, they probably felt they were getting their revenge on the universe. 
Frank really was very smart. Now, I saw the reports, obviously, the footage. It was breathtakingly simple, really. Clients had to book a slot to come to the safety deposit company. That was just common security sense. They present their ID before and during the visit, then leave with or without anything. It was up to them. And remember, larger objects required that load of other security arrangements. Now, because of the event Frank had chosen, the jury event, he knew the clients would mostly just come to look, take in their hoard at the safety deposit place, maybe take a small thing out, maybe not, maybe cash. It was irrelevant because he knew people and he knew criminals. You see, remarkably, when it all kicked off, none of them blamed the safety deposit company because everyone covered it up. They had to. See, Frank had them all pegged. There was an internal document never seen by anyone but a few high-ranking folk, including yours truly here, and it stated that each client had arrived, spent between 45 minutes to two hours, a set and previously agreed time with a safety deposit company, then all left, all captured, clearly on security camera. But that wasn't actually true. You see, what in fact had happened was each client had indeed arrived, captured by camera, they'd entered their respective rooms, and then they'd left. That was all on film. It was only when the first alarm had been raised some eight hours later by a Tevian Usic, a Turkish crime lord according to a source, but the extent of the problem had finally been revealed. You see, of the ten dragons who'd arrived, none, in fact, had actually left. They'd entered their rooms, apparently ordered a drink, only to be later found, in the words of the senior medical examiner, to be recovering from the effect of a powerful nerve agent or poison of some undisclosed type, them being insensible in their rooms for the duration of their visit. Now, the security cameras had all been paused very briefly, some very high-tech skills used not to trigger the old alarm system, and that had allowed Frank's people to nip into each of the rooms, all checking in on the unconscious occupants, they took what they wanted and they left as normal. None of the room occupants ever revealed the extent of their losses, some claiming nothing indeed at all had been taken. More a matter of saving face, we all thought. Although unsurprisingly, none involved the authorities or the police in any way. What a surprise. You see, it was all just internal safety deposit company, file information. Now, on much closer forensic film examination of the people who'd left... Apparently the dragons all carrying bags and receptacles. They then appear to be other people. Made up to look like and dressed in exactly the same clothing as the now naked clients who'd virtually all immediately succumbed to unconsciousness. You see, there were free drinks on offer from the assistant. Impossible to resist, especially given that every drink on offer was from a selection of their absolute favourites. Frank's research standing him in very good stead. Now, ego is a funny thing. Most people have one. I have one. I like people to like me, you know, be impressed by my work. And I think we all do, which is actually why I can actually set this story down slightly more accurately than the ladies and gentlemen at the Safety Deposit Company. Our Frank, well, he couldn't resist. He knew I'd had him on our radar for loads of years, but he sort of wanted to let us and me know he was now retiring. And how? And then plus, 
and a bastard did something so totally unexpected I got dragged in exactly as he'd intended into his final performance. I was sitting in a cafe in a rather lovely square in a different place in Europe when a young girl appeared and she'd worn one of those masks popular with Japanese tourists, her eyes oriental in the fleeting look I got, for she just bowed and placed the envelope that sat here on my desk now. You see, Frank, he just wanted me to know. Ego, I guess. The whole story. Well, most of it anyway. To be honest, in a way, I appreciate it. Because it sort of gives me an odd sort of closure. Oh yeah. Remember those bitter people I mentioned? Yeah, all close to retiring. They were all makeup and costume folk from the film industry. Small pensions, tiny savings. All casualties of that explosion of old CGI and computer stuff. Effectively putting them all out of work. Is it meant... New, cheaper youngsters were arriving. Again, these were the bitter people, the angry people, the ones that had been passed by. And they'd actually been the team that arrived at Frank's room in the safety deposit company first. Now that room, he'd kitted it out. Sewing machines, makeup, and the other lot that worked in the company, the three insiders, all had been recruited through Frank's recruitment agency. Now, according to the list, they had, in order of operation, operated and briefly paused the security cameras. They, one of them, had been the assistant taking clients to their rooms, and that meant they were the drinks assistant, bringing that large trolley down, up and down in the lift, to carry away the heavier parts of the theft, allowing Frank's team to enter the Dragon's rooms, find the goods, whip off their clothes, alter them, apply disguises and using the information taken from the Dragons earlier, booking forms with their ID, all courtesy of that security insider. And it meant our crew could just leave with their bags just like normal, exiting the building, all calmly and with no fuss or bother. Now finally, every inside staff member, they'd been put onto a shift that coincidentally allowed them to leave the building one hour after the operation. As far as I could tell, they collect their new IDs, passports, and presumably their very large payoffs waiting somewhere online, and they were never seen again. You see, this is clever again from Frank. They all knew they just robbed. Those people would not be happy, so it was good that they went off and disappeared. And I guess they'd be happy to start a new life, privately. Somewhere nice, I'd imagine. Warm, sunny. Now, in conclusion, the real part that threw me, and that was our Frank, he'd added a list in his file to me. You know, the one the girl slipped to me? And, well, it was all the police personnel, the ten dragons had hurt, and damaged over the years. And he enclosed a bank account and communications and emails. I checked it all out. The International Police Benevolent Fund, a charity Frank had set up in his first year of operation after the safety deposit holding company job. It had just paid out 5 million euros to various of my injured and sick police comrades all around the world with a clear mandate 
to continue that largesse going forwards from its 20 million holding investment fund, which I could see it invested in various multinational corporations. <sighs> What's I going to do, eh? Catch him? Like I said, he was a clever bastard. Still a criminal, though. Now, as you know, there's a brand new Story Hive episode every single week, and they come from our main site, three W's, thestoryhive.co.uk. Always remember, if you like what we do, follow us, give us a tick, give us a shout, drop us an email. And if you've got any comments, we are always happy to hear from our listeners. So I'll just leave it with this. I hope the world brings you some lovely news today. Yeah, lovely news. Bye now. Thank you.